0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com.
1: Hey, this is Phil. Now, look at something lying close by to you right now. I don't know what that might be. Maybe it's a potted plant or a musical instrument or a table. Doesn't matter. Look at your chosen object and ask, what am I seeing? Well, it's it's a table, right? What do you want? It's got four legs and a flat top with like a ring from where that one guy left his beer without using a coaster. Now, a scientist might say, ah, no, you're not seeing the real table. The real table is the swirling dance of energetic particles revealed to us by science. You can't see it, but that is the table's true reality. Reality is available only through special techniques of study, mathematics, electron microscopes, and whatnot. But what if the reality of the table lay precisely in that aspect of it that we never see, and will never see, No matter what experimental techniques we devise that would be what graham harman calls the third table the third table is a mystery it draws us in and pushes us away we can never look at it directly yet we might catch a glimpse of it sometimes out of the corner of our eye in that state of gnosis called art what are things in themselves can you see them do you really want to see them What claim does the thing in itself have on us? What happens when we go from thinking of a thing as it to thinking of it as you? We hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: So we're discussing Graham Harmon's essay, The Third Table. Mm -hmm. It's kind of almost like a pre c or summary of of his philosophy, uh, which he calls Object-Oriented Philosophy. The name later transmuted or evolved to Object-Oriented Ontology, which is very convenient for Internet philosophers because they can abbreviate it OOO, which is fun to type. And um, (laughs) this is a movement in contemporary metaphysics that... Is, it's kind of part of a larger movement that people have called speculative realism, but less and less people are talking about that now because the thinkers that made up this pseudo-school have all kind of taken jabs at each other, and, and it's very clear now that they don't agree on very much.
1: So so the problem with calling it speculative realism is it denotes a, a false unity, that there aren't yeah. actually enough commonalities among these thinkers like Ray Brassier or Kantamaisu. Uh, Steven Shaviro. I'm trying to think
0: who else is in that. No, Shaviro not in it. Actually, not in the original bunch. Um, he is now, but the oh, original okay. conference, which was called, I believe, speculative realism, was uh, Ray Brassier, who's basically a kind of post-nihilist thinker, uh, Quentin Meillassoux, who calls his philosophy, I believe, speculative, speculative materialism, and mm. Ian Grant Hamilton, who's an idealist uh, of the God of Schelling. Uh, you know, type. He's a Shelling fan, uh-huh. and uh, Graham Harman, who is all about object-oriented philosophy. And uh, w- where they agree is that they're all trying to um, get us out of a particular impasse that philosophy has been stuck at for a while since Kant, and that's the impasse that Meyasu calls correlation or correlationism, which is the idea that. Since we can't think the unthinkable, everything that we experience in life is basically just a figment of the human imag- not a figment, but a, uh, it's a, an appearance to the human imagination. There's no way out to get to the real reality outside of our of the realm of human cognition, basically. I think
1: about it in terms of the closet in which I am recording this podcast episode right it's my son's closet this is one of the upsides of having your son go off to college is that you can then podcast from his closet (laughs) um and so like i'm thinking okay so right now i'm sitting in this closet and all of its various qualities that its textures and you know the flaking scarred paint on the wall to my left all of this stuff has a reality to me but when i'm done and i turn this recorder off and i close the door i am of course assuming that the closet goes on being the closet with the door closed if i wanted to prove that well how would i do that i could step back in the closet but then the problem is that that's not the closet without me that's me back in the closet i could set up a recording device Uh, And then, um, you know, like a like a like a camera or something and then observe the tape later. But then that is just a technological surrogate for me. Right. Um, The closet itself, minus any human subjectivity to view it, is even though we can assume that it's pretty much the same as the closet I'm currently sitting in, that closet, the closet that isn't for me. That closet will forever be cut off from me for the simple logical reason that where I am, I don't know what to call it, the closet in itself, um, yeah. where I am, it is not, and where it is, I am not. Exactly. It's, just, it's like death. <laughs> you know, exactly. so like where death is, I am. Uh, I am not, and where I am, death is not. That's like an old line. I think that's a Stoic line about, uh, like, from the philosophical Stoics about death. Why you shouldn't fear death, uh, right? Because death will forever be completely unavailable to you. So why fear it? But I take the idea of correlationism, as it comes from Kant. I take that to be something of the same idea.
0: It is so. Kant, his philosophy, his his conclusion was that. Although we can think the thing in itself, we can think our way to conceive of how something can exist without us, we have no access to it. So in the case of the camera, for example, you put a camera in a room and then you show you look at it afterwards, and you're like, see I wasn't there, but the, the room was still there. But that camera belongs to the same plane, the same realm of pure phenomena that is in doubt to begin with. So it, it doesn't right. prove anything. It's like it's like uh Correlation is the idea that we have no access to reality in itself, only to our relation to reality. So Kant concluded that there is a reality, and we can know there is a reality, because um, for all kinds of reasons. But we cannot conceive it, access it, see it, touch it. It's completely, It's completely barred from our experience. Kind of like we're in a submarine. Uh, with no windows, and we only have access to the to the outside world, to the subaqueous kind of outside through um, instruments, our intuitive faculties, our our brain, and our sensory apparatus allows us to see images of the outside. But these images have no uh, necessary or ontological relation to what the outside actually is. So we're just oh, seeing. just like
1: like those deep sea submersibles like they don't have windows because the windows would be a point of weakness right and could easily be crushed inwards by the immense pressure of the uh, the deep sea yeah and so you we just have like little digital cameras that are poking outside and then relaying that information to the inside of the deep sea diver but yeah, yeah i get i get what you're saying
0: and and the nature of the information coming in is equivalent to for example the 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 reading on a radar like there's like you can look at a a radar in a submarine and you can see dots and you can see you can kind of calculate the positioning of various objects but you're you're not seeing anything of what these objects actually are you're just seeing these this this these phenomena that are connected to the what Kant calls the the noumenon the thinking thing in itself but purely determined by your own uh subjective equipment so to speak so so the speculative realists, the, the four thinkers who spoke at this initial conference that sparked the speculative realist movement, were all interested in breaking out of that. And insofar as that's one of their aims, they are connected, but otherwise they're very, very different. For example, Kanté meyasu fully embraces correlationism, and he gets out of it by radicalizing it completely. Whereas uh, Graham Harman just doesn't see cor- that the the initial argument as very convincing to begin with. So yeah, can't Kant's original argument? Yeah, he doesn't see the correlationist circle as as daunting uh, a foe, philosophically speaking, as Mayasu does. Like Mayasu goes embraces it and radicalizes it, whereas Graham Harmon kind of just skips over it in a way. But another mm. way doesn't, because he still has a thing in itself theory, which we'll get to. So Graham Harmon had this different interpretation of, of a, a particular passage in Heidegger's being in time where he's talking about tools. So basically what Heidegger says is that we become conscious of things when they fail to function. So you could be using a hammer. You're completely unconscious of the hammer. The hammer is absent, but then it's suddenly its presence is as asserted the moment the hammer breaks. Right? So, Mm-hmm. But But Harman's, theory, Harman's thinking about it was like, well, the hammer was always there, and there's all kinds of things that are working and influencing us without us being conscious of them. And you can't really make sense of the conscious part of reality unless you take into account how all these things uh, work on us and, and have effects outside of our conscious world. So the what he's saying is that the hammer has its own being. And when it breaks, it's not just, I just don't become aware of the hammer as instrument. I become aware of the hammer as a thing in itself, as its own thing that was always there and that exists whether I'm there or not. So from there, he kind of built his his philosophy, which he um, summarizes in the third table. I think I read this
1: right at the beginning of our correspondence. We started corresponding on one of the very first things that we talked about was the third table. Yeah, I knew nothing about this uh, philosophy, and so you hit me to that. I'm
0: trying to remember how the subject came up in the first place. It was like, I think it was the first or second email exchange we had that I can I just read it, so I, um, I wanted you to read it. Oh, you know what, you
1: what it was? I th- you know what I think it was? You wrote a post, you wrote a blog post on your Reclaiming art site about what you called weird realism. And that name just kind of resonated in my head. Mm. I don't know quite what it meant. So I remember thinking like, that's got to be a thing that exists. That sounds too cool to. Uh, <laughs> that's too cool for JF to just thought of himself. Right, um, of course. But I went looking through the library catalog and found a book by Graham Harmon called Weird Realism, Lovecraft and Philosophy, and started looking at it. And that book is the some of the same ideas, I guess the central point that Harmon makes. His philosophy of objects is that objects all have the same—I don't know if "quality" is quite the right word—but they always have. They have the same properties, which is that they are at once. I forget how he puts it, but basically, inviting and withholding. Alluring. Like there's something about them that discloses themselves to us, even while at the same time they're also receding from us. Yeah. And Harman's book on Lovecraft, if my memory serves me I haven't looked at it since 2015 his argument is that Lovecraft's writing actually performs the condition of all objects Lovecraft's narrators are always sort of using words like indescribable right and nameless or unspeakable like they're always gesturing frantically at something that is never fully defined. And even in those famously Baroque passages of Lovecraft, where he's just piling on adjectives upon adjectives, actually, Harmon makes a pretty cool point that if you actually try to track those descriptions mentally, and... I don't know when you're reading something you're translating descriptions into something some kind of representation in your head if you try to do that with Lovecraft's descriptions it doesn't work because what you end up with is this constantly shifting object so even in his description of Cthulhu you're like okay tentacles got it okay dragon wings got it a uh, fleshy pulpy head got it. But then by the time you get to fleshy, pulpy head, you've already kind of lost Mm -hmm. track of the first things, all of which are kind of incommensurate with one another. They don't fit. That's kind of the point, right? These horrible objects, these horrible monsters from beyond time, they fit our categories of perception only accidentally and incidentally. And so what Lovecraft is trying to do is to get us face to face with the true horror of these things. And the horror of them is the way that Not only are they indifferent to human beings, but their very being is indifferent to our categories of perception. So we can see some little bit of it, but the little bit we see points to a monstrous totality that will remain forever beyond our grasp. And so you can see how that would become an excellent uh, figure for what Harmon is writing about in the third table. And I think you wrote back and said, hey, you got to read this thing, the third
0: table. Exactly. The, the word he uses for what objects do to us is, is I love the word, it's allure. So objects uh, work on us by alluring us to them, but they always withdraw. So you never get to the real object. You're, you're always trying to like feel around, or you're, that's why like Lovecraft's narrators tend to use many, many adjectives and adverbs to describe what they're experiencing or what they're perceiving, but they're, there's contradictions in what they say. Like it doesn't actually, like you just mentioned, it doesn't actually compute at, at a purely propositional level. They're trying to describe something that is literally, that does not conform to the categories of understanding that we have. So when he uses Lovecraft as an example, an, an, a kind of exemplar of, uh, of this, Graham Harmon is also sustaining his thesis in the third table, which is that art gives us access to the real in a way that philosophy, as practiced today, and science do not. So, Art has a kind of privileged place in his philosophy as a means of accessing the real.
1: I feel like we're, we're maybe putting the cart before the horse. We should probably even say what the hell we mean by the third table as opposed to presumably a first and second table. He says that there's a, I don't know, philosopher of science, Eddington, I can't remember his first name, who did a series of Gifford lectures. Um, anyway, so Eddington starts with a figure for his audience. He says, well, this table before me There's actually two tables. One is the common sense table, the table that you see right now with your eyes, the table that I'm using. But the other is another table, which is revealed by science. And that table bears only an incidental resemblance to the one that you think you're looking at right now. That table, the second table, is a table of atoms. Uh, It's a table of subatomic particles. It's a table of Energetic forces, it's a table mostly of nothing because, of course, the distances between uh, atoms is vast. And, uh, you know, most objects are mostly nothing. And so he's sort of doing something that by now I think is probably pretty familiar, saying that the objects of everyday life have a certain meaning, a certain look, a certain feel, a certain presence to us. But that is all entirely beside the point because um, that's just how we... Defective human mechanisms register those things. What they are truly in themselves, objectively, are this interplay of subatomic forces, or atomic or subatomic forces. And so Harman is going to turn around and say, actually, both of these tables are, well, he uses the word shams. In fact, I think he says utter shams. He does, yeah. Um, and he wants to acquaint us with the third table. Anyway,
0: so did I like describe his setup to that adequately? Yeah, and the reason he says they're both utter shams is he's taking aim there at two uh, schools of thought in philosophy at the most general level. He says there are two ways of... Well, first he says that he wanted to develop a philosophy that did not privilege one type of object over others. So... And the way he puts it in the introduction is that zebras, leprechauns, and armies are just as worthy of philosophical discussion as atoms and brains. So he's div- giving us their definition of objects, which is particular, and maybe we'll get to that. But the idea is that he doesn't want to privilege one type of object. I, I would we- like to point out just—I would like to point out just in passing,
1: flag it for future use—leprechauns. Yeah. The fact that he includes leprechauns in his list is interesting from a weird studies perspective. Yeah. So I want to come back to that. But, well, but well, anyway, but continue what you were saying. I, I don't want to get to that yet.
0: Yeah, that's why I mentioned the peculiarity of the list, because it's very important, I think, for understanding his philosophy. The second axiom is that the ontology of objects transcends their appearance. So objects are more than what we see in them, and they're also more than is determined by their relations with one another. So for example the relation between you and your coffee mug you can't you can you, doesn't determine the nature of the coffee mug the coffee mug exists outside of its relation to you and also it exists outside of its relation to the table it rests on that that objects between themselves are uh, are involved in a kind of falsification where only certain qualities of the objects uh, are revealed and to reduce the objects to those qualities is to um to negate the objects in themselves. So he wants a philosophy that recognizes the reality of things in themselves. And the third uh, axiom is that objects are polarized. So we have to distinguish between the real object, so the real coffee mug, and the coffee mug that's available to phenomenal experience, which is what he calls the sensual object it's not the actual real object and this 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 essay and the reason he's using the third table the, the two tables analogy that uh, eddington brings up in his skifford lectures the reason for that is that he is trying to explain to the reader what this real object is he's trying to get at at the real object in this essay and so what he's saying is that what, what Eddington is doing, as an astrophysicist, Eddington uh, believes in you know the, the finality of science. So what he does is he reduces the table to its most basic, smallest components. So electrical discharges in vast, empty space. That's what the table actually is. Harmon, in other places, calls this undermining. It's when you take the objects of the world and you undermine them by reducing them to some substrate some substrate which he
1: he says that scientists reduce things down to their constituent elements.
0: Yeah. And then he he also criticizes the opposite move, which would be to reduce things up to their effects on humans. So, for example, well a table is just a table. It's just that's all it is. Or a table is constructed socially through, you know, a kind of Marxist or post-structural theory by which language constitutes objects. And there's nothing more to an object right. than, its, uh, than the, the uh, immediately apprehensible social forces that bring it into being. And then the, right. the, So that's another type of reduction that he calls overmining. So you can undermine objects, you can overmine them. But he says the real table is somewhere in between those two. So the real table, the third table, is something that neither the, uh, let's say, the, the sociologist who would reduce the table to its uses or its relations to, hum- to humans, neither he nor the scientist who would reduce the tables to, to its um, atomic composition is getting at the real table. The real table is something else. those are the claims in the essay and then he proceeds to allude at the third table without really giving us a definition of what it is and Mm -hmm. that's necessary because he thinks that you cannot define the real table the real table is something that is eternally withdrawn it is something it is the table to itself and this is really interesting to me and graham doesn't make the move i think he should make and i think he has reasons for not making that move but um maybe we'll kind of Play with it in this in this podcast at some point. So, what's the move you think he should make but doesn't? Well, it seems obvious to me that at some point you'll have to admit that what the table is to itself is the table is subject. So, is that Uh, is that yeah, and that's that's the move he doesn't make. But I don't think I can get. We'll throw that out as
1: a yeah. We'll throw that out as a teaser.
0: Yes, exactly, and we'll we'll get to it. Yes, coming soon.
1: Panpsychism.
0: But before we get into it, can we talk about a little bit about why this matters? Because I think this is really important. There are two basic positions you can hold right now in philosophy, these two camps, right? Idealism and materialism. So the materialist is the person who believes that the world is composed of non-living causal matter and that... Consciousness and life and meaning emerge from this interplay of purely material, uh, almost abstract entities colliding with one another, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the idealist believes that the world is actually a manifestation of the mind, so that, that all things are actual, actually mental processes, and that um, the world itself can be conceived of as a great mind. That outright or honest idealism is rare today. Most idealism is hidden or concealed. Like I would argue that Foucault was an idealist, and so was Derrida. But there are some outright idealists, one of whom I've personally engaged with online, is Bernardo Kastrup, who's gaining notoriety, I think rightly, because he's very smart. And he, uh, he is an outright idealist. So he's an idealist of the Deepak Chopra school, who believes that the world is fundamentally pure consciousness and that things emerge out of that pure consciousness as illusorily distinct entities. So we're actually just, according to Castro we're all just alters of mind at large. But where do idealists and materialists agree is what matters because they agree in a, in a certain way that makes them codependent on each other and also um, equally problematic in my view. To both someone like Bernardo Kastrup or someone like Daniel Dennett who's the ultimate materialist let's say um, we live in a world of representations the things that populate our world are just ideas in the mind whether you're a materialist or an idealist that's what you believe the lamp isn't really there it's an idea in your mind so it's uh, for the materialist it's the the lamp it exists only because of the way your brain is made and the way the you know Various forces interact to produce this image in your mind of a lamp, whereas in fact it's just the quantum soup, you know. And for, for Bernardo Castrup, the lamp is a your image of a mental process in what he calls mind at large, the ultimate universal consciousness, the, the super mind. So in both cases, there's a negation of the object as such and the affirmation of a substrate that is the real thing, that is really there. Everything else is just an illusion. So why is that problematic? Well, I think that these two philosophies, which this is their, in their, I've just described them, their extreme forms, but it seems like everything teeters on these two poles. This kind of meta-philosophy that includes both idealism and materialism has had an effect in on the world, I believe. I think that the, for example, a concept like natural resources, That concept that we use, that corporations use actively all the time, is basically Mm -hmm. an idea of nature as a representation. So the actual waterfall is transformed into the potential for a dam, and it's not. Things aren't actually Uh, finished until they've been altered by us. They're just represent. They're just images. They're just. They They are nothing to themselves. They are imminently transformable and the, so obviously that type of thinking has had a huge effect um and yes. and i believe that we need to think our way back to the things themselves and to recognize the self-being of even the most inanimate most meaningless thing like the the dust mite or like the cobweb um these things if they have their own meaning if they if they exist in and of themselves then the world gains a value that it seems to have lost in our rampant representation. And representationalism is becoming even more of a problem now that we are basically just drowning in media. We're constantly surrounded by images of things that we take mm-hmm. to be real in a way and false in another way. They're, they're, we're, we're just in this kind of a hall of mirrors, right? So it's, it's, right. these types of philosophies become even more tempting in our, in our present context and i'll finish on this point i'm sorry for the long monologue but there's a computer game that basically allows you to kind of live out uh the walden experience so so the computer game is you're living in a hut in the forest and you're cutting wood and you're doing this and doing that and it's and it it was like it was a big hit right or at least it seemed to be a hit Mm -hmm. when it came out and it's it's like basically this is a game where you just live in the woods and um you cut wood and you hunt or you, you know, take, you know, you go, you paddle on your canoe. And there's this idea that you're somehow living Thoreau's vision by playing this game. Whereas I, I'm just imagining Thor, how Thor would react to that? Now, the whole point was to really be in the woods, wasn't it? You know, like. Oh, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. These things are becoming interchangeable. Or there's that, Mm -hmm. this is truly the last thing. There's a South Park episode where one of the kids uh, wins a, he's becoming a guitar hero champion. So he's this amazing air guitar player. And then his dad pulls out a real guitar and starts playing for real. And the kids are just embarrassed. It's so uncool to play a real guitar. (laughs) You can actually play musical instrument. Dad's completely missing the point. It's not about actually playing music. It's about winning at guitar hero. So, so the idea is that we're becoming increasingly ensconced in representations and more and more um, separated from uh, the real objects. Well, you know, this reminds me
1: of, a, actually, this is a line that I repeat in a lot of different contexts because it's so, I don't know, it works in a lot of different contexts. There's an art critic named Dave Hickey. I heard him when I, I was on a postdoc at Stanford at the beginning of my career and he and Dave Hickey was invited out to do a talk and Hickey's always been a little bit of a you know a little bit of a renegade he he's somebody who in an era where beauty is ideologically suspect if you start talking about beauty people assume that you have some kind of retrograde agenda that you're trying to put over on people Hickey is very, very pro-beauty, and he's written a lot about the indispensability of beauty, both as a concept and as a just an actual fact of life and everyday vernacular practices uh, of, for example, admiring, like attending car shows and admiring really cool custom cars. This, to him, is one of the most important things in life, generally, and he's always taking aim at the academic orthodoxies that seek to circumscribe or control, or in the case of a lot of postmodern theoretical approaches to art, uh, just completely deny beauty entirely. Say beauty is a construct, it's a uh, ideological figure that does a certain kind of ideological work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in developing this idea, he did, in this talk that he gave at Stanford, he's saying, there's always a reason not to show naked people. And he's talking about paintings of nudes, right? And the point he's making is that we're always coming up with reasons to be uncomfortable about nudes, just paintings that are unapologetically, paintings that are unapologetically fleshy, paintings that are unapologetically sensuous and voluptuous and seek to inspire a kind of very basic response in us, which is arousal, if not sexual arousal, although that might be part of it, uh, at least a kind of aesthetic arousal. And Hickey's point is that this is a sort of standing affront to the lawgivers, the, the cops, who always seem to be attracted to the profession of art criticism, people who want to control other people's access to and engagement with beauty. And so when he says there's always a reason not to show naked people, he's talking about how, you know, in uh, the 19th century, Christian moralists would be very worried about the lasciviousness of these glorious old nude paintings. And now here we are in the 21st century, and instead we are agonizing about the objectification of women, the male gaze. Um, beauty as a uh, almost like a propaganda uh, a figure of propaganda that controls how people perceive normative bodies and how we marginalize non-normative ones etc cetera, etc cetera. okay these you know the the 19th century moralist is christian and the 21st century moralist is anything but is is a secularist plus ça change right right uh There's always a reason not to show naked people. Um, Somehow beauty will always end up being a scandal to the people who are appointed or appoint themselves to be the arbiters of representational morality. And getting back to what you're saying about the kind of obscure agreement between idealism and materialism on treating the world as a series of representations, there's always a reason not to to not to give us the object. Right. You know, we'll always come up with a reason to take the object in its fullness and dissolve that fullness out into saying like, well, that's just some, actually, you're not really seeing a flower vase before you. Those are just like flickering electrical discharges in your brain that are coming through your optic nerve, blah, blah, blah. We can reduce it downwards, as uh, as Harman says, or we can reduce it upwards and we can say, well, this this is uh, the, the object as it exists for us. And the object then becomes uh, simply a function of our interactions with it or its interactions with other objects. But either way, there's always a reason not to give us the object itself.
0: Right. And maybe there's a reason for that, um, just as there is a reason why there's always a reason not to um, show nudes. And I think that the object in itself... At least this is what I've thought: is that the object in itself is always uncanny and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes, this applies to even the most mundane objects, as as Van Gogh made clear, you know, with uh, sunflowers. When you see something as just what it is, it it points you back to the what I in my book I call the radical mystery of of being itself. Is that an object framed out of all relations and seen as such, is shows its uncanny subjectivity. It reveals its self-being, and the fact that it exists even without you. That revelation, even in the in art or in life, is unnerving, uh, because it yeah. challenges our innate claim. Or our in built-in claim to, to primacy or supremacy as human beings, it it undermines the rational presumption that allows us to—I um, don't want to say dominate nature, but to 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 survive and to thrive. It, it, there's something dangerous about it. So I, I don't think it's totally unwarranted yeah. what the moralists would say, or the—I'm um, going
1: to give you actually. I'm going to take that in a uh, a weird direction. Sure. Here, how's this how's this for a, a weird hypothesis that comes at the same thing the, actually there is some way in which we simply can't handle objects there's something about objects in themselves that is refractory that even when we approach it we can't deal with it there's something about it that is think about heraclitus's utterance his uh I think it, Fragment 123, Nature Loves to Hide, right. or Nature Loves to Hide Itself. This is something I noticed. I used to meditate a lot. I meditate a little bit these days, and and I'm not very reliable with it. But at one point, I was kind of hardcore. The practice of zazen, or zen meditation, uh, shikantazo is, is the term for it in Japanese, and it means just sitting. And what, what, what are the instructions? What do you do? You just sit. And there's something about that that is extremely difficult for the human mind to comprehend because you always want to make every activity, everything about something. Right. And so if I sit, I'm like, well, what am I sitting for? You're not sitting for anything. You're just sitting. Okay. <laughs> then how do I know I'm doing it right Well, you don't. And, you know, you you realize as you you try to just sit and almost invariably fail, uh, just sitting turns out to be like we can't just handle the bare reality of things. We have to make something of it. And you can see this in meditation. You can see this moment by moment as your mind struggles to make something of everything that enters its field of awareness, whether it's somebody coughing, which in a silent Zendo, you know sounds like a thunderclap you you make something of that like oh fuck that guy i was i i was really i was meditating really well and then that guy had to go and fuck it up by coughing like it's impossible your mind just grabs onto anything as an occasion for itself to make something of it and now what's challenging here is that You can sit there and, you know, you ask somebody who's an experienced meditator, well, what do I do about it? Well, you just sit, just sort of let it go. Somebody makes a noise, you let it go. What if I am remember like an argument I had with somebody at work, something like that? You let that go. Okay, fine. Then you let all of these things go. But then that subtly introduces this other making something of it, which is you start treating... All of your thoughts and, indeed, everything that happens externally to you as illusion, as as maya, like, oh, these are things that are getting in the way of me just sitting. Hmm. And so it's very, very easy to go from a position of at least attempted full-on realism where you are just the bare presence of objects is manifest to you. Right. And, and yet it slides ineluctably into this thing where you're like, oh, all is maya, all is illusion. And you're right back into that whole thing where you're treating the world as a representation as against some higher or deeper reality that you are going for. And that thing you're going for is, of course, something you're trying to make out of what's present right. to your senses. Absolutely. You see what I'm saying?
0: I liked it when you said that we have an innate tendency to make things about th- something. Everything has to be about. And that's yeah. exactly what representation is that everything has to stand in for something else, whereas nothing can just be. Yep. And um, I think uh, Goethe uh, developed a, a, a meditation practice um, this method of just taking common objects and just meditating, just watching them. Just observing them, letting their qualities speak to you in their own language, and to watch how uncanny they become, and to watch how mm-hmm. how um, alive they become in and of themselves. This is something, mm-hmm. and it also reminds me of Martin Buber's I Thou, right? the The idea that, and I'll get we'll get back to sitting meditation. I think that's that brings in an important piece. But this is something anyone can try, and it'll potentially change your life. Okay, because it did for me. So I was I read Martin Buber's I Thou, which is uh, about the importance of maintaining an I Thou relationship with the world instead of an I It relationship. So instead of seeing seeing things as it, see things as yous. Okay. So um, and he he's mm-hmm. talking about the, the relationship between yourself and God should be a relationship between an I Thou relationship, not an I It, as it often becomes in religious. Uh, context, so people start thinking of God as this, this, this force that they believe in that will you know that watches out for them instead of being of always maintaining it at the purely individual level of me and you. There's this like direct uh, dialogue between uh, the self and the divine. Anyways, but if you apply that philosophy in a more mundane context, non-religious, secular context, just take a walk through a park, and when you see a tree, instead of thinking, "Oh, look a tree," it think you think of that word just apply that word to the tree and you will see the tree in a way that will blow your fucking mind i believe it works it's like as simple as that if you see a thing it's true. and instead of just applying the label to it the the conceptual label that you've been given for that particular type of thing if, and if you just forget the label and just look at each thing as a unique singular object for that little moment, your whole, the, the whole intellectual scaffolding that you use to, as a kind of overlay to make sense of the world will disappear, and you'll just be faced with a, a singular event. There's really nothing more to say about it than it's uncanny, because you're not seeing a tree. Oh, look, there's, so, uh, there's a tree and another tree. Each tree is its own thing. As Aristotle said, every object has its own substantial form. It's a very non-platonic way yep. of seeing things, but it allows things to exist for themselves.
1: Well, this is this brings us back to Harman's essay because he invokes Aristotle to make exactly the distinction mm-hmm. he wants to make. And and he says something like, I don't have the essay in front of me, but he says uh, that Aristotle is useful in this conversation, or at least a suitably weird construal of right. Aristotle. And what I, I, I like that we're weirding Aristotle here as sort of, this is a, something I've started thinking about like as a cognate to the idea of queering yeah. something, um, which is to make something strange by repositioning it within the uh, an alternative perspective, like a queer perspective. Weirding Aristotle means taking this idea of substantial form and using it in such a way that it almost becomes like a, pr- a practice of animism. Yeah. What's weird is to think about things having a substantial form that doesn't exist for us or for anything and that also isn't about anything. And if you actually relate to objects in this way, I mean, that's how we relate to people. We treat people as people who have their own lives that go on, whether we're there to observe them or not, uh, we posit an interiority to people that we don't with objects. Uh, We posit a depth in people that we don't in objects, or for that matter, animals and plants, which are not objects, not mere objects, living things, but nevertheless, that we don't ascribe mind to. Like what I can't, emphasize to the uh, the folks listening at home, uh, I cannot emphasize enough the truth of something JF said, that if you try this as a practice, it will change your life. It's absolutely true. I didn't... Actually, it's kind of funny, because I don't know if we've ever really talked about this, but this is something... There's this park in Bloomington, Lake Griffey, where I like to go on walks with my dog, and it's a beautiful forest, and I started sort of relating to trees in exactly the same way you describe. Like, you you don't have to be enabled by belief. You don't have to go in and say, like, I believe in the dryads, you know, the the fairy spirits of the trees. That doesn't have to be your point of departure. You can go in with no belief whatsoever and just be like, this is an experiment. Okay, let's just try this. What if you look at a tree not as an instance of tree but you treat it as an object with depth and interiority such that we attribute Mm -hmm. to persons. In other words, it's very much like what an animist does. In fact, it's exactly what animists do. You're relating to things that we normally think of as not having any kind of sentience or independent mental life, and you're treating them in this way. I'm not going to tell you what you get out of that practice, but actually I think, JF, you kind of... You kind of put it pretty well. It it transforms your experience of the world. The world becomes an intensely more meaningful place, a more valuable place, and a place infinitely deserving of our care and our love. Because you can't quite approach trees as resources, right? What was that Heideggerian? Standing,
0: Standing reserve.
1: Yeah, you can't approach a grove of trees, a standing reserve, like, oh, hey, this would make a pretty good softball field. Just get these trees out of the way. Or look at a bunch of trees as like, oh, these trees, um, you know, th- even in a much less destructive capacity, like, oh, this tree will make good shade for me as I rest on my, on my way. When you approach trees as if they were people, that's not the same thing as saying you think they are people. That if you approach them in this kind of this way of just addressing them inwardly as thou then the idea of treating them in that coarsely instrumentalizing way seems either beside the point or vaguely indecent i mean it would be weird if you just came up to somebody on the street and just stood in their shadow you just treated them as a neutral object that provides shadow right, right? that would be an odd thing to do. And yet, of course, we do it to trees. I'm not saying that you're a bad person if you go and enjoy the cool, shady rest offered by a tree. I'm just saying that... uh, I guess I'm just repeating myself. No, but the way you just phrased it is
0: important. You're saying offered by the tree. It's not just a purely utilitarian thing. It's a gift from the tree. Lest we all come across as just like tree-hugging dryad worshippers, I don't think that we're saying that it's wrong to cut down a tree you know to build something or it's not that there is there is a, a contest in nature which i think we should accept right that that it's it might be necessary to cut down a tree for this or that reason but it's possible to embrace the need to to transform nature without reducing nature to standing reserve right and that's that's kind of what yeah. the you know like the, the classic japanese aesthetic of transforming nature and honoring nature at the same time, you know, the the Japanese garden or the way that Mm -hmm. uh, various indigenous cultures have approached things. It's not either or, right? But I like your idea of animism because I think that gets right to it. Because what what Harmon writes in the essay, he, he says, unlike in Plato, for whom there is one table form in which countless tables participate, for Aristotle, each table is its own form, a substantial form, rather than a form existing only in its relation to a perceiver or some other thing. So basically, the table is something to itself. The the table exists in what he called, in another part, he talks about an autonomous zone where objects are simply themselves. So there's an autonomous zone where the table is just itself. And I think that's when you talked about Zazen, that kind of gets to it. What's the point of just sitting? Well, first of all, there is no point to just sitting but the kind of overarching purpose mm-hmm. of just sitting if we were to translate it into practical terms would be to connect with your true self right to to discover right. who you are and you mm-hmm. never get to it right that's the thing that, that you'll never ever reach your fundamental self but you can feel mm-hmm. it you can experience it in an experience, in in what what's called satori right mm-hmm. um so so the, mm-hmm. To approach objects as thou instead of its is to practice a kind of zazen with objects, to let to allow objects to exist of their own accord. But what does it mean for an object to have a substantial form, to exist on, to exist on its own? Well, you know, Graham Harman says that we need to give Aristotle a properly weird interpretation, but then he never really gives the interpretation. It seems to me the interpretation is that objects have souls. Objects have what you discover in Zazen. Objects also have that. This non relational, Mm -hmm. singular self existence. Everything has that. Mm -hmm. That's a crazy thought. That it It means, in other words, that there is something it is like to be a tree or a thumbtack or or a hammer or a a vase of sunflowers, Mm -hmm. for that matter, right? That there's something it is like to be these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a move that not many philosophers will, will make because it, it seems patently absurd. And yet in that moment where you look at the tree as as you, it's kind of self-evident. And this is actually a
1: direction that some contemporary philosophy has gone in. Stephen Shaviro's most recent book, oh, what is it called? The Universe of remember. Things. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and also, there's another philosopher. I want to say it's Timothy Morton, but I may be entirely wrong about that. They've explicitly embraced a kind of pan, panpsychism. Yeah, panpsychism. Yeah, they've have explicitly said, yeah, there's something it's like to be a rock. The only thing is, you're like, you're not necessarily going to have any interesting conversations with a rock. You probably aren't going to be able to, uh, in fact, let's just say you won't be able to engage in that interiority with things in the way that we engage in with the interiority of fellow human beings. And so saying that there is something it is to be a rock sounds absurd. It sounds ridiculous because we're like, well, those aren't sentient organisms. But that's not really the... But that question is kind of beside yeah. the point.
0: Uh many panpsychists are careful to um, point out that they don't believe that rocks have consciousness, and others are. I think Shaviro is a little bit more daring. But I mean, it's not like the someone has explained away the hard problem of consciousness. There is a problem in philosophy called the hard problem, and that's that is how consciousness emerges from a brain. Because a brain, there's no, there's no quality, right. there's no um, categorical or qualitative difference between a a brain and a rock they're both just atoms yeah and somehow one we naturally ascribe consciousness to because we all have brains and we're conscious and the rock we say that's an absurd leap Mm -hmm. but it's no less absurd to posit that a brain has consciousness than it is to posit that a rock has consciousness i mean just on the bare facts so to say there is something it is like to be a rock yeah it's like being a rock Yeah, that's all it says. (laughs) But what it means is that consciousness is both more than and less than what we construe it to be normally. That's one reason I'd love to discuss um, William James's essay, Does Consciousness Exist With You? Because I think it gets to that. So to get back to to Harmon's essay, so Harmon doesn't make the move to panpsychism. And I think he's argued that he's not a panpsychist, but he's also shown some signs that he's moving in that direction. I haven't been keeping track of his work over the last couple of years, but he does say, however, that the third table, the table in itself, the table that exists in autonomous zones where objects are simply what they are, that that philosophy as currently practiced, philosophy modeled on science, will never get to the third object, to the third table. Art, however, does get to the third table. And this is really, really interesting. What he's saying is that basically an artwork so a painting of a table or a photograph of a table or a novel about a table that'd be a good novel you should art, write it man you should make a you should make a film about a table that'd be easy the, the film <laughs> would be easy the novel would be difficult um yeah. <laughs> but but the uh so so the question is how does art hunt the third table well what does art do he doesn't really explain it and I watched a talk um, that he gave on this subject and somebody at the end asks him, give me some kind of takeaway here. What, what is the third table? And he says, well, look to art because I can't give you an answer. You're looking you're looking for a propositional answer. But that's precisely what I th- what I'm saying is unavailable to someone wanting to um, touch the, re- the third table, the real object. So 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 he's just saying, well, look to art. Well, OK, so let's let's look to art.
1: Well, actually, if I can jump back, I was kidding around when I said, like, "Oh, you should make a film about a table," and you're like, "Yeah, that'd be easy." But that's what Andy Warhol it is, did, right? Yeah. That there's a whole strain, st- a whole kind of minimalist art that grows up in the '60s, where it's all about, like, you know, putting a camera in front of a table and letting it record for 12 hours, like that. I don't think Warhol made that exact film, but he made a lot of films that are pretty. Well, he much made one like about that. the
0: Empire State Building,
1: right? and also somebody sleeping where he like records an entire seven or eight hour interval of somebody sleeping. And it seems to me that things like that, whatever the stated reasons for making those pieces of art might've been for Warhol or for anybody making similar artworks, it sometimes seems that artists just want to hang out in front of the object. Like the object itself, you might think a 12-hour film about a table would be pretty boring, and from a certain point of view, nothing could be more boring. But it's almost as if in a like an experimental film like that, it's almost as if the mere fact of just observing a table, you can never exhaust the table. Like, just the the overkill of filming the table for 12 hours is itself a paying tribute to the way the object will never fully disclose itself, you'll never capture it, even if you kept that camera rolling for 36 years, that it seems to me like the activity of making that kind of art almost speaks to a kind of maybe unarticulated, maybe largely unconscious project of hunting that third table, that third entity.
0: I think the films of Terrence Malick are uh, a good, less experimental example of... That sort of practice where, yeah, he tells a story, but he also yeah. lets the camera linger for a long time on uh, the background. What would normally be the background of the film becomes the foreground in Terrence Malick. So the camera will cut to a bird in a tree or to the trees and swaying in the wind, and he'll let that image linger because these things too are happening they're happening around the characters. They're kind of forming, shaping the world of the characters and the characters kind of what happens in the Terrence Malick film is I find the character, the the characters tend to dissolve or to expand into their background. There's a, a, conf- uh, a blurring of the line between foreground and background, narratively speaking yeah. in his films, which I find very interesting. Of course, Terrence Malick was a Heideggerian and, yeah, that's uh, right. and, uh, yeah, I think that those, those 60s experimental films were instrumental in, in developing this aesthetic consciousness of the object as such. I think there's something there. At the same time, uh, just as Graham Harmon includes Leprechaun in his lists of objects, well, very complex objects, such as, let's say, an affair, right? <laughs> a, a marital hmm. affair can, make, can be the object that a film observes, so it's not just physical objects, but certain types of events also constitute in Graham Harmon's worldview. They are objects in themselves. For example, he believes that armies are objects. So a battle right. is an, an an event is an object. Like in a way, sometimes I think that he it was a mistake for him to call objects what he's talking about are events, and um, that's a more complex mm. issue. But. I think that it helps to expand his vision of objects on that fourth dimension of time so that you see them not just as discrete things, but processes or things with potentiality. Right. So then they, they can include things that we don't normally think of as objects, such as nation states or universities. Uh, these are examples he uses in his talks. Um of objects. So at one point he says my university moved but it still remains the same object, the same university. So what he's saying is that concepts are also objects. That's interesting. So that's why that it's not just the experimental films that look at particular objects, although those films are telling us something, but it's also films that treat their subject matter without what I call judgment. Let their subject matter unfold according to their own logic. So That's the difference between a moral fable about, let's say, a marital affair, a film designed to teach you don't have affairs, and a film that just shows you an affair unfolding (laughs) like a flower blooming and wilting and dying, a film like The End of the Affair, I can't remember the director's name, but it's based on that amazing Graham Greene novel, uh, where the affair is not judged. The affair is an event that is observed, that is framed out, and that becomes its own uh, measure, of value. It's not something that we. It's not, uh, and that that's the big difference in my mind between artifice and art. Is that artifice judges its subject matter, whereas art allows its subject matter to develop according to its own logic. So, maybe that's one way that art gets to the to the reality behind things. about this essay is that he is defining the real in a very particular way. The real for Harmon is what things are to themselves. That's the real. And he says that art is a way for us to allow things to be themselves. That, that certainly aligns with the argument I made in my, in my book. And the reason I think there's value to that argument is that, that art has a, an inherent uselessness that gives it this power and what art does is it separates things from their relational networks in order to show them as they are. So for instance a painting like Klimt's The Kiss, okay? So a man and a woman kissing and then, and then of course the emphasis in the painting is on the the resplendence of the the garments that that kind of contain this kiss, right? Uh-huh. Um you can't reduce the garment in the painting to the materials used to make garments, to like the thread and the, Nor can you reduce the the painting to the actual, you know, gold paint he used yeah, to make Yeah, the pigments it. and whatnot. There's, right. There's an effect that is irreducible to its causes. Whereas it seems to me that traditional philosophy, science and magic even, always insists on... The causal process by which things come into being, whereas as art is the moment where the causal is suspended as an important thing. So the qualities of an object, the qualities of a dress in real life, are its material composition. You know the old four four causes of Aristotle: its material composition, its function, its uh, its shape, etc. Mm-hmm. The qu- those qualities on the painting are transmuted into, they're not qualities of something anymore because there's no real dress there. They are expressions of the dress. So when you when you translate qualities into expressions, you're subjectivizing the object. You're giving the object a subjectivity. You're saying this object is telling me gold, telling me that shape. Mm-hmm. That object is expressing these qualities to me mm-hmm. as opposed to, That object has those properties, has those qualities by Mm -hmm. which I can know it. So there's a moment where he says, Harman writes, any philosophy is unworthy of the name if it attempts to convert objects into the conditions by which they can be known or verified. The term philosophia, possibly coined by Pythagoras, famously means not wisdom, but love of wisdom. And then he says, this is a beautiful line, he says, the real is something that cannot be known, only loved. So, when you look at qualities as expressions, you cannot know them. You can't contain them. You can't reduce them to what they are to you. You can only approach them at the level of um, of feeling, of, at the level of immediate sensation, of immediate intuitive apprehension. Those other faculties that tend to take a back seat to the intellect, and so that's why that art indirectly touches things by transmuting their qualities into expressions. This is not Harman, this is me. But he does give some examples that develop this this idea. So he'll say, for example, that the reality of a magic trick is not known when you know how the trick is performed, but precisely when you don't know how it's performed. Right. The gap between how the trick is done causally and your experience of it is essential to the trick being what it is, which is a magic trick. Once you know what the trick is, it's not a magic trick anymore. It's just uh, an an act of sleight of hand. Right. In other words, in order to see the reality.
1: Actually, then it does get broken down to its constituent elements. You're like, oh, well, then you palmed the coin and then you distracted me with your other hand and you transferred the coin to your sleeve or whatever. Um, Right. Yeah. When you explain the trick, then the trick no longer has those emergent properties, those qualities that are more than the sum of their parts. And, exactly. And, and Harmon points out, it's like it's a long standing prejudice in philosophy. It goes back to the pre Socratics that the truth of an object is given by its most elemental constituents. So yeah. that would be Eddington's second table, the idea that what the table really is, is its, uh, it's elementary particles. And Harmon points out quite rightly, I think, that the truth of objects is not simply their smallest bits. But it's, I right. think you're absolutely right. It's like when you, you know, a magic trick is a great example, like a stage magic, you know, is a great example of something whose, whose properties are emergent in that sense, more than the sum of their parts.
0: Exactly. There's a nice, uh, there was a David Blaine video that I watched where there's a little, a little narration at the beginning and it ends with the line, I, I don't remember, it's like, this is not illusion, this is the spectacle of the real. And I thought, whoa, David Blaine is awesome. This is exactly it. The spectacle of the real is the, the the reality of a magic trick doesn't lie in how it's done, but in itself as an event. So I'll give you an example. From like, I, I thought this was wonderful. So last night, I'm watching Stranger Things second season with my, my daughters. And um, my daughters are seven and five. So... It's taking a risk, but they're, they're really, really enjoying the show and they get it and they love it. And I've kind of just given up on hating myself for, for, for showing them this, this show, which was definitely, you know, obviously intended. Well, yeah, for but at least audience. you're not, at least you're not showing them
1: like Saw.
0: Right. No, there's a humanity to stranger, stranger things, which I think completely justifies it. And it's about kids. Yeah. So anyways, there's that scene in season two where the monster, oh, that spoilers, bro, captured yeah,
1: okay. There's a, <laughs> but, but go ahead. Spoiler go, alert. Go ahead and spoil it anyway. I just wanted to say for the benefit of our listeners,
0: spoilers. Right, right, gotcha. Uh, so um, there's a moment where one character finds out that his pet monster has killed his mother's cat. Now, by this time in the series, or in the two seasons, my girls had seen all kinds of quite horrible things, but none of them had really phased them. They were just enjoying the ride until that scene. And then my older daughter, Delphine, fell to tears because a cat had died. And you see it. You see the dead cat. And Fiona seemed pretty okay with it. She's only five. So I asked her, I told her, you know, Fiona, the cat's just a puppet. And then she looked at me and she said, oh, did the hand die? Oh, wow. And I thought, what does she mean? She's like, oh, so if the cat was just a puppet, well, what is it that died? Was it the hand and the puppet? And I thought that was amazing because what that she was saying, amazing. telling me there, what she was telling me was that something died. I saw it. That's the event that I witnessed. Yep, that's so right. So if it wasn't the cat, it was the hand in the cat. Yeah, if it wasn't the or cat, was then what else. was
1: it? It must have been something because yeah. I saw it. Right. Oh, that's In interesting. other words,
0: and it was the same with Delphine. Then I was telling Delphine, look, it's not, it's, the, the cat's okay. It was an actor cat and all that, but she doesn't care because- the event is irreducible to the processes exactly. by which it came into being. It and this is and reality. this
1: is why our next episode of weird studies and all subsequent episodes will be hosted by JF's daughters. They will re- be replacing <laughs> they will be replacing JF. This is JF's last episode so we will all thank you for for coming on and <laughs> That's a really great story. So that's perfect. So, yeah,
0: well it just gets to the reality, the self-existing reality of the event, the autonomous existence of the event, and how the world, and then Harman in the essay writes, the world is filled primarily not with electrons or human praxis, but with ghostly objects withdrawing from all human and inhuman access, accessible only by illusion and seducing us by means of allure. In other words, have you ever thought of this? The universe is not made up of atoms. It's not made up of ideas. The world of the the universe is made up of lamps and statues and cars. And what if all these objects exist at the fundamental level? Is it any more absurd to think that the first thing that emerged was an egg or a vase that exploded or a turtle that emerged from the dark waters? Like, the fact that anything exists is is the absurd part. Mm -hmm. So it's just as if you can grant self-existence to the substrate, So let's say mind at large is the thing that exists in itself. At some point, you just stop, you know, working your way down the causal chain, and you say, okay, well, this is the fundamental thing. So for Bernardo Castro, he says the only thing that really exists in and of itself is mind at large. And then uh, Daniel Dennett says the only thing that really exists in and of itself is like the quantum soup of space time or whatever. Mm So in either case, you're attributing the existence of each thing to something else until you reach a point where it's so fundamental that you say, well, that thing just exists on its own. But if that thing can just exist on its own, why not a billion things? Why not a quadrillion things? Why not each thing that exists? What what gives this fundamental object the privilege to be able to exist on its own? If you can, if you can give that object that privilege, why can't you extend it to every object in the universe? enjoyed this episode consider subscribing to weird studies on itunes stitcher or google play you can also find us on twitter and facebook music for the podcast is composed and performed by pierre yves martel thank you for listening